All right. Welcome to another episode of the Sandhill Road Podcast. I'm your host, Erasmus Elsner. And my guest today is Doug Ludlow, who's the founder and CEO of Main Street. Main Street is a startup that helps other startups to claim and uncover research and tax credits alongside other tax credits. And he'll talk about that. We're going to uncover that. Doug, really happy to have you on the show. Hey, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And this is really not your first time in the founder's seat. I looked into your background and you had two other, even three other companies. I think the first major company was a company called Hipster. And the next one was Happy Home Company, which you ended up selling to Google. I want to start really, you know, with this early experience, Hipster. You launched it in 2011. If I look at the funding round that you pulled together in 2011, you had a Google Ventures, you had Prime Startups, Mitch Kapoor, Knight Bank, Charles River Ventures. And you had this mysterious landing page yeah. there for right. a while that said something cool is coming to San Francisco. And then you offered a 10K bonus for engineers to join the company as well as a one-year supply of Pabst Blue Ribbon, Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Talk about this first company as a good segue into your founder life. Yeah, so the this company, Hipster, it was a location-based photo sharing company. So a little like Instagram in the early days, but tied far closer to the location you were sending, right? So like you go to, I don't know, somewhere in San Francisco, you go to Union Square, take some pictures. You'll then also be able to see the pictures that were shared by others at the time. So it was very, a product of his time 10 years ago, very mobile, social, local, right? And also that was kind of the early days of, we can say growth hacking, I suppose you could say. So coming up with interesting landing pages, I was, you don't really see that anymore, but like long coming Sue lists, right? That we are able to help pioneer, you know, viral gimmicks that helped bring a lot of attention to our company. So I learned a lot there. It's funny, we're often remembered far more for our viral gimmicks than we were for the product itself, because the product had a few million users by the end. But at the time we were so far eclipsed by Instagram that it wasn't even really a competition, which is one of the reasons why we sold. But it's just kind of funny to me that how some of those early, early things designed to get people's attention still do 10 years later. And it's, a, it's really fun to work on that. And also a nice reminder, though, that like all the viral gimmicks in the world aren't going to get you long-term company success, right? Uh, you know, we still lost out to Instagram. You wonder how much of, our, of our, our time should have been spent working on the core product rather than things that drive you know, eyeballs, but not you know, sustained growth. Yeah, but what I like about you is you you keep coming up with these gimmicks. And also the way you actually launched Main Street was through a gimmick by offering those remote incentives. I think it was also 10K incentives for people yeah. to locate outside the Bay Area. And that basically led you on a path to uncover the sweet spot for Main Street, right? And so that's right. it is a pattern that's really this growth hacking mindset of you that led you down this path for Main Street. Photo sharing apps were the taste of the time. And then you transitioned for a while. You did the rest invest at AOL before mm, launching right. the next startup, which was Happy Home Company, which was a yes. completely different segment. You ended up selling to Google. Maybe talk a little bit about that. So Happy Home was, the, the concept was like, imagine an Angie's List or a Thumbtack with a virtual concierge, right? The idea that if you own a home, you have no, often have no idea how to actually take care of that home, right? I, I'm projecting. I'm not a handyman by any sense of the word. I can't do anything. It's also a huge pain to find a contractor, right? I don't know if you ever try to find a, get a plumber or get an electrician. Like there's a lot of scammers out there. There's a lot of, you know, you can't always trust online reviews. So can you can you provide a really easy trusted experience? A lot of this came from my experience buying our first home 10 years ago, you know, small little townhouse in Santa Clara. And I realized 
I'm on my own. I'm, I'm in trouble now. So we started with this company that happy home to take care of that, that problem. Learned a lot, raised about three and a half million for this. And although yeah, we talk about it, it was really an aqua hire is, is what it was, which is a kind word for saying it was a failure that and everyone gets jobs though. So a bunch of us went over to Google and helped build the Google home services ad unit. And it was interesting. You know, many of the lessons I learned at a small startup working on home services were just as applicable at one of the world's largest companies working on home services there. I don't know if anyone's, you know, we did a good job at Google on Pavel. We did it. We did a good job at, at Abby Elm. I'm, I'm glad we did. I don't think anyone's ever really cracked that space yet. So I think there still is an opportunity down the line for a huge company that can have, you know, a, a, an outside success in the home service space. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't a lot. We learned a lot. It was a lot of fun, but a little space waiting to be cracked. And as you mentioned, you did find some traction. I think it took you 384 days to get the first thousand users and uh, 1 million in, in AOR. And then it took you 38 days to get to the next million in, in AOR. So there was, at one point, there was a lot of traction in the product and what we were building. And you did, again, raise from some of the best firms, I think, Chris Saka, Lowercase Capital, SV Angel, and the Bob's Group. So how was it to go back to the investors after the first company and then basically go into another quite up space? I think the thumbtacks of this world were just coming around. How was it to be back in, in the founders then and there? It was, it was very different, right? It's amazing how quickly the tech industry reinvests itself, right? The investors who were hot a couple of years before were not always the same. Some had already retired, right? Some were, were moved on to different things. You know, every company, there's always been, you know, investors invest and then some of them invest in the next one. A big reason people don't is not the idea or me or the company. It's just they've either retired or moved on or done something else. So there always is a bit of a reinvention that happens of yourself, of your network. You know, it's a lot of those investors were, were incredibly helpful, incredibly useful. And I think with the lessons I learned with Happy Home went beyond the lessons of an early social, you know, Hipster was a, again, a totally social app. We didn't make a dime of revenue the whole time, right? But the whole point of home services is you're trying to capture a huge revenue opportunity, a huge value opportunity for customers, right? People are spending money on their own. Like you are at the intersection of that. So I think that really pushed me along as a CEO going from, hey, here's an interesting user interface. Here's something that will spread virally to, hey, you got you to gotta keep all of that. You have to still have to make it a phenomenal user experience. It still has to have, you know, viral and shareable growth, but now it needs to make money, right? And so that was my, my big lesson there. Learned quite a bit and evolved quite a bit as a leader and CEO. The company was much larger than Hipster ever was. I think Hipster, the max we were ever was like five or six. Happy Home got to 25, 26, 27. So it was a big scale up. And then you did again your two years mandatory rest invest at Google before you went off to the next adventure, taking some colleagues from Google and you started mainstream, which as I said, helps you to discover and claim tax credits. And we're going to go right. back what tax credits actually are, what federal tax credits actually are. I've given away some of the thunder of the founding story, but maybe talk about this first version of Main Street and then how it really found this niche of claiming tax credits and helping startups claim those tax credits. So in March of 2019, after I'd been at Google for, I think about two and a half years at that point, I met some really good friends there, worked on, you know, the, the local services, home services, small business ads. And I had two guys, Dan Lindquist and Daniel Griffin, who become good friends. And you know, we talked about starting a company for a while. And it really started to get serious in March, 2019. And we knew we wanted to do something together, but we didn't know what we wanted to do. We realized we wanted to work on something that was going to be meaningful, that we could devote years of our lives to, because that's really what a startup is, right? It's not just a 
quick flip. This is, if successful, at least a decade of your time, right? Certainly three to five years at bare minimum. And we want to focus on the things that we care deeply about. And after a lot of conversations, a lot of barbecuing in my backyard, you know, some smoking, some briskets and stuff, I realized we had a shared interest in, more like shared concern over what we viewed as a growing inequality, an inequality of education, of wealth, of opportunity that was arising most visibly at the time between, let's say, wealthy areas like San Francisco and New York and much of the rest of the country. And same thing for the rest of the world, actually, right? You have these, you know, talent is attracted to these very expensive, big cities. And how do you help spread opportunity beyond these cities? You know, I, how do you help spread great jobs? You know, I grew up in a small town, or actually a pretty large town for most places, in the middle of central California, a city called Modesto, about 200,000 people. And, you know, the economy there has really just been kind of beat up over the last 40 years to where if you need a, a, a good job, you have to leave your hometown most of the time. If you're a small business, it's hard to be successful. And so my motivation at the time was like, how can I help? I mean, forget the rest of the world, even though that's important. Hey, look at my neighbors, look at my friends, look at people I've known. How can I help the economy of my hometown, right? And that's where we really started to focus on how do you inspire jobs and opportunity in places like Modesto? And we very quickly started thinking about, oh, through startups and small businesses, right? These are things that, you know, I'd much rather have a thousand thriving small businesses in the city than one big factory, right? The factory can leave, the thousand small businesses, they can keep going. And so we, we officially kicked off the company, I think October 1st, 2019. And our initial take on this was, can you move small business workers, startup founders from, let's say, San Francisco to other places, right? Can you get them to move their companies? And as you mentioned, this $10,000 to leave the Bay Area campaign went super viral, international, thousands of people signed up. But the interesting thing that we learned at the time was we had dozens of cities and states and counties reach out to us and let us know they already had an incentive program to attract jobs and track innovation. And that was the first inkling that, wait a second, I think we're onto something bigger here, right? Rather than getting to people to move somewhere, could you tap into the pre-existing network of incentives and credits and, you know, hiring things, hiring programs that already exist around the country and around the world. And our focus began to shift from, you know, really November of 2019 to the time we landed on where we were in February of 2020 to, could you create a network of the tax credits and incentives and be a software layer that helps connect small businesses and startups to that invisible layer of tax credits and incentives? And that was really the journey. And it's so far proven to be the right call to make that move. Most of our companies now have employees all over the country, you know, outside of places like San Francisco and New York. We'll never be done fulfilling the vision, but like the spirit of what we're doing is very much in line with that. And yeah, it's been, it's been quite the journey. And then we'll talk about the last two and a half years, but the, the motivation was how do you inspire great jobs and great opportunity around the world? And it's really interesting on how you landed on this from, you know, being a very small atomic operation, focusing on something quite related but very different still in the beginning. And then talking about what is really the core of your business, these government tax credits. And to many people, I've lost them if I use the word tax, but let's really try to uncover and see what this is really all about because it can result in practically free money to many startups. So just to give some highlight figures, 150 billion tax credits every year, only 2% of startups actually claim those tax credits. If we take R&D, tax credits aimed to basically foster the upscaling of the American workforce to produce highly skilled labor. But paradoxically, it is only the large corporations, the Amazons, the Apples of this world 
who actually have the lawyers and the tax accountants to take care of the filings and to actually do all the nitty gritty red tape. And this is exactly where Main Street is coming in, right? And that's just really the, the tip of the iceberg, as I understand these R&D tax credits. There's work right. opportunity credits, there's disabled access credits, there's a whole layer of other potential credits that you're tapping into, but I've taken away too much already. Maybe give us the highlights and why this is such a big opportunity and why nobody's thought about, you know, having a software layer that takes advantage of this practically free money. I mean, what a great explanation. You want to come run our marketing? You just explained it better than I ever could. No, that's exactly right. There's actually 2,500 different credit and incentive programs in the United States. When you look at everything from the federal layer down to the city and state and county level. Most of our work is done right now at the federal and state level. Most of the value great people does come from these federal and state research and development programs. I'll kind of hammer home the point you mentioned earlier that although big companies only represent about 20% of the people who apply for these credits, they get about 95% of all the credit that's given out, right? Small businesses barely scratch the surface. There's 36 million small businesses in the United States, right? And really only about 6 million employees, like a tiny fraction are actually getting the credits that are eligible for. So it really is an, an enormous opportunity. And yes, why has this never been done before, right? Well, let's talk about that. So the Research and Development Tax Credit launched in 1981. So it's been around for you know, 40 plus years. And the Work Opportunity Tax Credit launched during the Clinton administration. So roughly 30 years ago. But the reason no one had done this before is because it was hard. And by that, I mean, no one's business systems talk together. So for example, if you want to do this in the 80s, odds are you were keeping track of everything with either a pretty archaic computer system or likely, you know, with pen and paper, right? The amount of work that went into just gathering all the proper information, like what are people spending their time on? Yeah, you know, what are the expenditures? was an incredibly costly experience. If you were Boeing or Lockheed at the time, no problem, right? You have the teams of accounts to do it. If you're a small business, no way, right? There's, there's, there's no way you're going to have that time. You know, fast forward 40 years and you really have this a, a kind of amazing APIification of the world, right? Over the last 10 years, specifically over the last five, normal business systems have gone from being pretty standalone to they can all talk together. So all of a sudden, my HR system can talk to my payroll system, can talk to my bank account, can talk to my accounting system, can talk to GitHub, can talk to Jira, like all these things in one. So we're able to skip about, gosh, 95% of what an accountant would have just had to grab manually. We can put that all into one location instantly, right? So the technological advantage that we have with this, you know, this APIification of the world is pretty extraordinary. And then you know, on top of that, you can build, think about all the advances in fintech and how, you know, if you're able to, you know, peer into someone's bank and see trends, like it would take in teams of accounts to do that before. Now we can do that instantly. So now our, our challenge is we have all this data. How can we organize it, understand it in the right way, and then start to match you with credits? So we couldn't, you could not have had a Main Street 10 years ago. You, you could have account consulting firms. Consulting firms have existed for 30 years. They'll help get you tax credits. Probably in one form or another, like, People helping get government money has existed for hundreds of years. So it's not a new concept, but the why now? Well, technology is finally at the point where it's worth it for a small business to do this. It's not going to cost you $100,000 with the odds of you getting something being pretty small. Patty McCormack from the Not Boring Newsletter, Substack Newsletter, he also mentioned this 2015 Protecting Americans from Tax Hikes Act. 
that also play a role in making it much easier. Maybe you can expand a bit on that. So back in 1981, when the R&D credit was, was launched, it was only applicable that the credit you got was applied to your income tax as a corporation or as a business. So that means it had to be profitable for it to matter. So again, if you're someone like Boeing or Lockheed at the time, yeah, sure, you're profitable. You apply some of the credit and it's like cash to them. Most startups, especially most startups, are not profitable. They may not be profitable for years. So they really didn't benefit from the R&D credit. Uh, the PATH Act that I think finally kicked in in 2017, by the time it was passed and everything. So only a few years ago, really, it let startups and small businesses who were under a certain size start taking this tax credit applying to your payroll tax. Now, payroll tax is something you pay every time you, know, you end up paying employees, right? It's a, the social security tax, essentially, you pay. So here you basically get that either on a refund or you could just simply, you know, not withhold it and, and declare the credit you're using. And that's something that's applicable to any taxpaying company in the United States. So it opened up the door. I mean, think of, you know, there's something like 60 to 70,000 venture-funded startups in the United States. There's another like 850,000 growth-oriented, technology-focused small businesses. So suddenly that opened up the PATH Act, opened up, made R&D useful for almost like a million companies. So there's this big opportunity. This is why a lot of companies are, are starting to do this. You know, the stats of like 2% of small businesses actually take advantage of this. Hopefully we'll change. Mm -hmm. We'll start seeing double digits of people actually claiming these credits. Now talk a little bit about the Main Street product and how it's used. You sign up, you connect your Gusto, you connect your Workling, and then basically you have those tax credit hunters employed, whether it's robots, whether it's humans on your side, and then you get a report back in a short time period, much shorter than if you had a tax accountant. It would take them days right. and weeks to come back with an answer. You actually described the, the product pretty pretty well, right? The key is connecting your HR system, your payroll system, your accounting system, and your bank, right? From that, we have all the information we need, and we start matching, right? We start understanding, like, how many hours are people working on these specific things? How much is this being devoted to supported activity, right? What are you spending your money on, right? There are some expenses you can spend your cash on that doesn't qualify for RD. Others absolutely does. Right. So the benefit of sitting where we sit is we've now, you know, processed thousands and thousands of companies, seen hundreds of thousands of employees come through and seen, you know, maybe billions of dollars worth of spend at this point. So we're really good at being very quick to identify, hey, companies like yours have seen this before. When you're spending on this type of thing, it likely qualifies or you know, making sure people are always compliant or, hey, this absolutely does not qualify. So most of this should happen behind the scenes for companies, right? You connect it. And, you know, if you're one of, if you're on the happy path, you don't have to do much beyond that. And talk a little bit about the success stories so far on average, you saved those companies 50K, but talk about some of those success stories and how they benefited from your service. Yeah, that, those are old numbers. We're much higher now. So we're going to release pretty soon. We're about to do a relaunch of the site, new branding, everything. So we're going to talk about much higher numbers. So again, the product's better. We, we have more credits, but I'll start actually from some of the earliest days. We have companies who... I, this isn't a ton of them, but enough to where we saved some companies from going out of business at the early stage of the pandemic. This was, if you recall, there was a phase where, you know, the first couple of months of the pandemic, everyone thought things were done in the startup world. This is before, you know, 2021 came by and everyone raised a ton of money and just went crazy. But we helped keep a lot of companies lights on, which was really gratifying, right? That's our whole goal. How can we help companies, you know, create jobs, create opportunity? You can't create jobs or opportunity if your company's closed, right? So that, that was fantastic to be part of. And then, you know, over and over again, we see companies who end up saving a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? It allows them to 
employ some additional uh, workers and market more. I, you know, it's, it's, it's like the size of a pretty large angel check or even a VC check for some startups. And especially if you're a small business that doesn't, you know, have access to venture, this is a huge source of, of capital for you. There's not an interest payment. It's just free money. You know, when I worked at Google, I loved working at Google, so I'm not going to throw one under the bus. I loved it. I, but I was working on ads, right? I mean, you're helping a multi-billion dollar company make more billions. Like you're helping people in abstract. This is very clear. You get to see like, hey, this is a company that's trying to do something interesting, trying to live their entrepreneurial dream. And I and my company or our company help them achieve that. And that's, you get to sleep pretty well at night. When I love it. And talking about the customer profile, we mentioned that part of the customer onboarding is often, you know, linking your QuickBooks, your Rippling, your Gusta, your JustWorks. So it's often digitally native companies who use those technical systems to support the general workflows. And is it also something that for, you know, the regular smaller mom and pop shops in middle America that might not be as technically sophisticated might be an interesting offering for them? That is a great question, right? So let me break it down for you. There's 36 million small businesses in the United States, but about 30 million of those are sole proprietors, right? Many of them just don't use any of these systems, right? Of the 6 million employer small businesses, those people who employ at least one person, I, you're left with about a million people, and I mentioned this previously, that fall into our, our category. These are the people who are digitally native, who, you know, who have adopted you know, modern business systems. But the interesting thing is there's enough of that group for us to continue to grow, continue to refine the product. And over the next 10 years, you're going to start to see the 36 million small business owners, they're all going to become digitally native, right? This is a process that you know, 10 years ago, most small businesses were not, right? Now, far more are, uh, than they were before. And 10 years from now, like, so we're, we're kind of riding this rising tide that is, it's no one's, like, it's not because of anyone, any one company in particular. It's not because of Intuit or Google, Rippling, but all those companies that aggregate are making, or Toast, right? Toast, like, made a lot easier for restaurants to go online. The companies like Service Time, House Call Pro, have helped home service providers go online. So give it another five to 10 years, and you'll see our market go from being, you know, a million or so to 5 million. And then within the decade, you have tens of millions. Yeah. Now it's obviously a secular trend that's going to continue. Very much so. Um, and I think another thing that I wanted to understand a bit better is, you know, the reason why people are not looking for those tax credit apart from, you know, this being very complex. And, and there was one reason that popped up when I looked through Twitter that people were saying it might increase the risk of audits. And that's something that we've also thought about quite a bit. I think you have a guarantee of an audit protection, but I think in the people's minds and especially smaller business owners, there's still this don't mess with the IRS. What is sort of your response to those people, those critics who rather not get involved with the IRS at all? You're dealing with taxes. You want to make sure you're doing this right, right? I think it's vital to make sure you're doing it correctly. And that means using someone like Main Street. If you don't use us, use a really great R&D accountant. People get into trouble with things like this when you start doing it yourself. And I mean, not saying people shouldn't do it themselves. That sounds very self-serving of me. But there are certain things, if you're not paying attention to the nuances of what should be categorized, what shouldn't, it could create a flag. And it, you know, the, the penalty means you just have to pay the back taxes plus a 20% fee. So it's not a criminal expense, but at the same time, you want to avoid the hassle. This is a case where if you work with an expert, your odds of audit, actually the odds of audit are very low to begin with. But you work with any R&D expert, you're probably going to be in a pretty good place to begin with. And especially something like Main Street, where we, again, we've seen thousands and thousands of companies and provide a, a full guarantee, you'll be in a good spot. For sure. And then something else I thought about was 
who are you competing with? And I think the main competitors you just mentioned, which are those classic R&D tax accountants or tax credit agencies, as they're called. And you have on your website basically three reasons why Main Street has a significantly better offering than those traditional incumbents. One is the tech enablement. We mentioned that before. Yep. Basically taking the time from 20 to 40 hours to basically minutes. And then there's the pre-financing aspect that we haven't touched upon. Maybe talk a little bit about this pre-financing of those tax credits. Sure. So we have the ability in some cases for you, not all cases, but for you to get early access to capital. We know the government is going to be writing the check. You know, there's other ways you can get the credit. It's guaranteed. The government is always, you know, maybe slow, but they're dependable. And so we offer a bit of an advance on some of your tax credits that can be used to either offset fees or to start getting access to capital early. It's not the same thing, but it's similar world to, let's say, a merchant cash advance or to revenue factoring like Python CapJays do. You know, we're able to look into the future and see, hey, you have something coming your way. Let's see if we can get you some of that early. So that, that is an advantage. Unlike other, you know, people doing tax credits, we see every aspect of your finance. We're able to underwrite extraordinarily accurately. And that gives us an advantage. So I started out, you know, tackling the market of startups. Was it more like a white space where they were not using any R&D text agencies and you basically were the first to claim this for them? Or was it also that they were using some form of tax auditor or tax accountant? And then there was some switching, very little switching. And we still find that today. Like it's, it's amazing. Part of is like, you know, something like 10,000 startups are formed every year, right? And so there's always a new network of people who are just getting started, who haven't even bothered to think about this. So there, there's always a pool that needs someone of first choice, but you'd be surprised how many accountants don't help their companies with this at all. Like it's, it's pretty, pretty shocking. Most people, those accountants are just working on your taxes, working on bookkeeping and aren't experts in these other credits. So we, we really help. There still is a lot of blue ocean or white space or clear sky here. All right, and let's talk a little bit about traction. And you guys are really on a rocket ship trajectory there during Corona. And I think you crossed the 1 million ARR run rate in 2020, safe clients on average 51,000. And then in 2021, you crossed 15 millions in revenue. And it was really a rocket ship trajectory. I saw some cohorts there comparing you to Slack, to the Twilio's of this world, and your cohorts were really crushing it. Talk a little bit about getting to this really early overnight product market fit. It's been intense. It's been fun, right? We launched a pilot of our product in March of 2020, right? Right at the beginning of COVID. And it did okay. But then once we introduced, we refined it, we put a, a tax credit season underneath us, added the financing advance option. And it just took off. It never really slowed down. I've never been in an experience like that before. And also trying to manage that and scale the team in the middle of kind of the height of the pandemic. It was, uh, it was, it was intense, but it was, it was a lot of fun at the time. You know, you're, you're growing super quickly. You're hiring a bunch of people and it was a very good thing. It probably aged me a bit, but for the first time in my career, I really understood what like being part of a rocket ship was like to where it's things just are taking off. It felt pretty wild. Yeah. And I mean, if I look at the funding trajectory, I mean, it's quite impressive here. You basically raised a series A that used to be probably a series D 10 years ago. That's <laughs> right. 60 million series A just a year after a rather small two and a half million seed round. Signal Fire was actually leading the series A. Yeah, I talked to some of your investors there at Tusk Ventures as well as Gradient Ventures, which were, I think, the lead for the seed round. 
maybe talk about, you know, this preempted series A, basically you were cash flow positive. You did not need the money at the time, but you were approached by investors. Obviously it was a crazy two years, especially everything tech and every growth investor, every type of global of this world was looking for who are the signal seed investors. And they were willing to pay three times the valuation a few days afterwards. Talk about this crazy fundraising journey. I mean, you've done fundraising before, but this one was a special one, I guess. Nothing like, nothing like this, nothing like the environment we saw. And it was interesting to see the difference between, you know, when we started fundraising, our very, very earliest seed, which is in October, 2019. So when we started like, hey, we left Google, starting off doing some very pre-pre-seed. You know, the market was, it was not bad, but it was, it was cool. By the time we started raising our Series A, the market had heated up considerably. That was December, 2020. And yet the craziness was, that was the beginning of the crazy year, right? I, the amount of VCs I had in October, November, who were banging down our door like, hey, we'll invest in this in valuation. We'll do, like crazy, unjustified, right? And so, you know, kind of hanging on for dear life. I mean, there's a reason why the market crashed down hard, right? It was unsustainable, but it was interesting to ride that. You know, the, the resources we took on in January, February of 2021, when the, the round came out, we were able to use to really solidify our platform, expand. So it's been money put to good use. And we'll raise another round in the future, but it's wild comparing where the whole industry was a year ago in August, 2021, compared to August, 2022. At this point, I'm really glad our, our business fundamentals are sound, right? That we're in a good spot, but it has been a wild ride to try to keep up with this, this fundraising side. Grow slow, grow real. It takes time to find the right employees, find the right talent to join your company, especially if you have this strong tech angle that you have with all these integrations with the different software providers. It is really important that you have the right people on board. If you had raised in October 2021, 150 million at three times the valuation, you would have to deploy that now and you would have to grow into that valuation. No, absolutely. Which a lot of the companies that raised at that time will never be able to do that, ever. But maybe to hit you here a little bit on a soft spot, you measured on Twitter that you had to lay off 30%. It's better to measure once than to cut twice, right? And to That's right. those cuts early on and get to profitability and get the metrics where the market wants them to be. Maybe talk a little bit about this current environment. Sure. Well, May of 2022, when we conducted our layoff, will likely and hopefully be the worst month Main Street's ever had. There's a lot of great people on the team that we said goodbye to, and it was terrible. That being said, we've entered a new economic reality, and it, it's gone through if you look at public company multiples, for example, many of them are down 80, 90%. Startup multiples down 80, 90%. Whereas it used to be very easy to go raise cash and you could be unprofitable and burning cash for years and still, hey, it's all about top line growth. I think we made the call earlier than most. Actually, I think there's been some like 500 company layoffs since we conducted ours not that long ago. We made the hard decision, but I think the right decision to focus on profitability and unit economics, right? And we're on track by hopefully Q1 of this next year to be a profitable company and then get to kind of control your own destiny rather than react to how the, the VC market is. So it, it was a hard call, but I do think the company will be stronger because of it. Again, the world is not 2021, right? The economy is not 2021. The amount of capital being raised there, in some ways I wish, hey, maybe what if we had raised at that giant valuations in October, November? But to the point you just made a few minutes ago, we spend the rest of our company's life trying to live up to that 
two to five billion dollar valuation that our peer company's got. At this point, though, we can actually focus on growing for real. And rather than being a company that posts a huge valuation and then can't ever live up to it, now we spend the next 10 years growing into what we hope is a sustainable, very valuable long-term company. So it is a thinking for the long-term. VC capital will always be there uh, if there's a fundamentally strong company. Yeah, talking about sustainability, I mean, just as hard as it is to file all these tax credit returns, it is also hard for companies once you have onboarded them to switch, right? And that's why you have quite strong cohorts. So that's right. More retention rates must be quite good. And this is really, I think, the first and fundamental basis to get to profitability. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I think we, we have best in class, what we call best in class SMB retention, right? It's, if you look at like, your retention for enterprise software. You, know, you need to be in the 90s to be making money. You know, the average like retention rates for SMB software is in like the 40s or 50s. We're much, much higher than that. To your point, because we provide easy value or it's ongoing value. You know, and it's much easier to stay with Main Street and we're going to get you a be much faster, probably much cheaper process than it would have been otherwise. And talk a little bit about the competition you touched upon, some well-funded competitors. How is the market heated up. Obviously, once there is the realization in the market of this great opportunity, you often have a lot of VCs trying to fund competitors. If they can't get into Main Street, they're either incubating a competitor right. or they're trying to find someone who's doing it good enough for other parallel investors to, to back it. So there's the, if you want to look at the competitive space, there's a couple. One, we already talked about R&D, R&D accountants or honestly, accountants will just do it for you without really knowing what they're doing. Those are dangerous. You shouldn't use those. But there's some traditional players that have been around for many years, like Claris R&D or Ardius, right? They've been around for a while. Then you have the startups like Boast.ai or Neotax or Pilot that will also do some credits. They're all good companies founded by good people. I know them all. I wish them all well. This is one of those markets where it's not necessarily winner take all. There could be a, a few companies in the space we're doing well. I think Main Street's the largest of them kind of by far. I, and I think our, our difference is we have multiple credits. We're not just an R&D company, right? There's a reason why we hired a bunch of ex-Google engineers to build the product, right? A lot of these other companies have essentially a team of accountants behind the scenes doing most of the work manually. We're able to eliminate virtually all of that with technology. It becomes very easy to add other credits. So it's much easier for us to grow and expand than others. But hey, if you're not using us, you should be using one of these other companies. They're good companies. And I wish them all well. On the vision and sort of the next steps, obviously... There's a lot of go-to-market that you can still do as it's sort of this white space. A lot of people have never even thought about using any service provider to claim those tax credits. But then there's also this expansion of the, of the core product by basically expanding into different other tax credit areas or, or segments. And then last but not least, you can help the existing customers to grow in terms of their use of those tax credits. Talk a little bit about sort of what's your top of the mind priority. Sure. Well, there's, when I say long-term, right? I think number of small businesses we serve is, is key, right? There will be different products. There'll be different product lines. You know, again, I mentioned there's 36 million small businesses in the U.S. We're not going to stop until we've helped every single one. So we have a long ways to go there. But when we think about the next 24 months, let's say, kind of the number one thing we focus on, how much credit can we get our customers, right? What is the dollar amount we can, we can find for them across these multiple programs? That's why they're here. I mean, they're here to get the credits they're, they're earned for. A rallying cry we've been using internally a lot lately is 100% of companies should get 100% of the credit they're eligible for. No more, no less, right? We don't ever want to be in a position where we're, you know, being unethical and taking way too much, right? We don't want to get people in trouble with the IRS. That's, that's priority number one for us. 
But we also want to make sure we're not leaving money on the table, right? Companies trust us with their finances, right? So how can we ensure that we're getting as many credits as possible, the full value for our customers? I think that's something I think about quite a bit. You know, of course, any business in our position, we worry about customer acquisition and retention, right? CAC, LTV, all the basics. So we track very carefully. I think long-term, what I'd like to be able to do is expand beyond tax credits. That may take years, right? But I started, as I mentioned, to help my hometown, right? And the small business in my hometown. And I actually think about my dad. He's retired now, but he ran a, a sole proprietor insurance sales business at Benesto. And he you know, was never actually that successful, largely because managing the financial stack of a small business was pretty overwhelming. And it remains pretty overwhelming, right? I think about my dad and people, the millions of people like my dad, who if they could just have something that handles their taxes, their banking, their loans, their credit cards, all in one easy to use semi-automated service, how amazing for the world would that be? So 10 years from now, I hope to not only make sure he's been the tax credit company, but we've been able to build on top of that to really be the small business financial solution. It'll take us a decade to get there, if not longer. That really is the ultimate North Star of where we want to take this. I'm not sure you qualify yourself as a fintech or a government tech or something in between, but it's definitely dealing with the government is probably one of the hardest and broken legacy systems in terms of infrastructure on their side, right? Oh, absolutely. And we have five minutes on the clock. That's when most podcast hosts bring up the favorite fives or the fast fives. I'm just going to limit myself to two. What's your business book and what sort of the mistakes you as an entrepreneur look back? Sure. I mean, I know this is probably cliche, but I love Blitzscaling by Reed Hoffman, right? If you read it incorrectly, you think it's, hey, it's just pedal the metal all the time. No, it's, it's understanding when you go as fast as you can to capture an opportunity. Then when you slow down to fix and patch all the holes of what you did to blitz scale. So it's this dance, aggression and softness when you need it. It's, it's really fascinating. But the advice I'd give to other entrepreneurs is, somebody tell people a lot, it's avoid the illusion of progress. You know, it's really easy to stay very busy and fill your calendar with things that are satisfying to check off. But in the end, don't really matter all that much. I think of some of my earliest companies, the amount of time we spent arguing over where do you want to place the office or the exact shade of blue on the logo, right? It couldn't have mattered less. Right. Instead, every minute you're spending on something that is extraneous, something you're not actually moving the company forward. So you always ask yourself, I'm busy, but am I actually making progress or is it just an illusion? So I avoid the illusion of progress is my, I love the big piece of advice. I recently tweeted, don't mistake activity for achievement. And I think that's exactly what you were saying there. Running against the clock, Doc, your call to action, where can people find out more about you, about Main Street? How can they take advantage of the offering? Well, hey, if you're a founder or a small business owner, go to MainStreet.com and give it a try. Worst case, we can't find you any credits. So you don't pay anything. Best case, we find you a bunch of credits and you know it's, it's almost like founder free money. So it, it is absolutely worth one minute sign up and then five minutes if there's something there. If you want to follow me, I'm Doug Ludlow, D-O-U-G-L-U-D-L-O-W at Twitter. I occasionally say something interesting, but most of the time I'm just posting about my dog or, or barbecue or something. But yeah, that's about me. If you're ever in San Jose, send me a tweet. We'll get together. Yeah, and off those pictures of your dog. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Thanks a lot for taking the time and walking us through the story from Main Street to Hipster to everything in between. And I really wish you all the best and fingers crossed. Thank you so much. I really appreciated the, the chance to be on the show. Thank you so much. 